Please pray with me, brothers and sisters. Father in the heavens, uh, only you know how important this material is. We live in a terrible time, Father. We acknowledge the sins of the land, the evil in the air. Yet by your grace, you have pierced through the darkness. And let us see exciting things that your mighty hand has done in the past. Please, Father, stir our hearts. Prepare us for Passover. May the words that I share with the Brotherhood today turn their hearts to you for a lively and fulfilling Passover season and days of unleavened bread. I commit this whole thing now into your hands. And my brothers and sisters agree with me in this. In the name and through the blood of Yahshua the Messiah. Hallelujah. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I'm Brother Michael Bannock from Fulton, Missouri. May all the grace of Yahshua be yours. The title of my remarks today is Passover Warm-Up, Following the Water. This is going to be an overview of historical and archaeological research pertinent to the Exodus story. An overview of what other people have found. And we frequently will be consulting the scriptures to make sure they're on the right track and um, see how this plugs into our understanding of the Exodus story. <clears throat> By the way, I'm really excited to hear about that music uh, access on the webpage. That's a nuclear arsenal to have all that music there. Hallelujah. There are three dimensions in which we're going to do the study. We're going to study uh, what happened in historical time. In other words, what year did all this take place? Because through, let's say, the 20th century, there's a lot of debate about exactly when did the exodus occur. And so we have to look at who, what the assumptions were, what went wrong, and how that has been finally resolved. And now we have a, a consensus, at least among the household of faith, we have a consensus on when the exodus took place. Then we're going to study the uh, business of where and what. In other words, the archaeology of the exodus story. And then we're going to take a look at the timeline of when it all happened. In other words, how things unfolded between Passover and the Mount Sinai experience. Actually, I won't be touching on the Passover much but rather the, the traveling and all that once they busted out of Egypt. Lots to cover. I'm going to have to talk fast. You have to know your Bible. I assume you understand the basics of the Exodus story. At a minimum, you should have, read, you should have seen the Ten Commandments movie, right? You know something about that. We're going to start with the study in historical time. What year did all this take place? So, subtitle for this section is Chronology in Chaos. It is, and it is nearly sickening, the confusion that governs this. The Bible, using the Bible and simple arithmetic, you can calculate within seconds when the Exodus took place. It is a no-brainer. I'm not kidding you. But these atheistic, Elohim-hating scholars... They have ways of churning things up. And they will always gravitate to the interpretation of their data that creates the most amount of doubt, questioning. Now, early Christian scholars got tripped up on synchronizing Shoshank with the biblical Shishak. And that's understandable. There's an Egyptian pharaoh named Shoshank, and when they saw Shishak in 2 Chronicles 12.2, they says, oh, that's Shoshank, because it kind of sounds alike, doesn't it? Now, this passage is similar to the one in Kings, but I'll read 2 Chronicles 12, verse 2. And it came to pass that in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem because they had transgressed against Yahweh. 
we're going to find that this uh, erroneous synchronization of Shoshank and Shishak created problems. The date for building the temple is without dispute around 966 BC. There's no, no question about that. The Bible further clearly states that this happened 480 years after the Exodus. You'll find that in 1 Kings 6, 1. This places the Exodus at 1447 to 46 BC. This is sometimes called the earlier date or the biblical date. Real simple arithmetic. If you have any problem with this, you can talk with me later. I'll show you how to do the, do the math. Nothing to it. Okay, let's place Exodus at 1446 B.C. or thereabouts. The identification of Shoshank with Shishak was understandable, but a major blunder. Now, Shishak attacks Jerusalem five years after Solomon's reign, about 925 B.C. Then Egyptian Shoshank-Shishak synchronizes with the Egyptian chronology in the eyes of the scholars. So here's what they do. These Egyptologists, they got their own lines of pharaohs all worked out. They think they know who's who and who reigned when. They got this all worked out. And they line it up so their Shoshank is a pinpoint lock-in with Shishak. And then they say, okay, now you'd start with that point and go 480 years into the past. And whatever pharaoh that is, that's your exodus pharaoh. So this shifts everything so that Menkapere Tutmosi III, we'll just call him Tutmosi III, he's on the throne in 1446 BC. And there's a picture of the bloke. I don't know if, he, I don't know if that's an accurate description, but that's, that's what I found on the internet for him. Okay, you place the Exodus at 1446 BC or thereabouts. You put Menkapere Tutmosi on the throne at that time. Now there's a problem. The history of his reign, when you look at this pharaoh of 1446 B.C., he has no problems. He's powerful. Everything's under control. He's expanding his territory. So worldly scholars, not us, worldly scholars go looking for a better time to fit in the exodus. They respond to us. Now, I'm framing this up rhetorically, but they, they respond to us and say, okay, you Bible believers, uh, you got the wrong pharaoh for Exodus. There ain't nothing like an Exodus happening in the time of Tutmosi III. But we got, another, we got a deal for you. We're going to give you Ramses II. Now, he was in operation about 1270 B.C. And we have evidence of wars beginning in Canaan around 1230 B.C., 40 years later. Sounds, that sounds about right. And to Christian scholars, this has the color of truth because Ramses is the name of one of the treasure cities. What happens, though, is um, when this sort of a, um, understanding emerged last century, there's tension there. There's, there's a lot of other details that are not fitting. And you'll find people do hand-waving in interviews. They'll say, well, you Maybe we're off by a couple decades here, or we're off by a couple decades there. And they're trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. And this tension continues through, through much of the 20th century. You got the Bible date, the earlier date, 1446, or this 1270 date. 
This is the start of people saying, well, maybe the Exodus just never happened. Because they're having a hard time finding a pharaoh who has bad things happening in his reign. Now, another complication emerges. One of the giants of archaeology, Kathleen Kenyon, I say here she conquers Jericho. She, she did excavations at Jericho. A very competent archaeologist did the digging before her, and a very competent one did digging after her. But she had an inordinate amount of influence, maybe because her conclusions rocked the scholarly world. She declared that Jericho was destroyed all right, but it was fell around 1550 B.C. This means that no matter what date you propose for the Exodus, Joshua got there too late to destroy it. Think about that. You're either at 1270 B.C. or you're at 1446 B.C. for the Exodus. She's saying that Jericho fell way before even that. So Joshua shows up and he has nothing to do. Jericho's already destroyed. So now you've got people running around saying, Exodus didn't happen, and the conquest of the Holy Land didn't happen. The scholarly world of Bible history was thrown into convulsions over this last century. Nothing fits, and some people are even postulating that Exodus never happened, the conquest of the Holy Land never happened. This is where you get this churning in the colleges that, oh, the Bible's all myths, all made-up stories. Because Shishak and Shoshank were erroneously aligned, even though it was a reasonable assumption, it was an error. And because Kathleen Kenyon goes out and says, oh, uh, Joshua, uh, yeah, he, he, uh, he got there too late. Okay, along comes a, a, a maverick named Emmanuel Velikovsky. How many people have heard of Emmanuel Velikovsky? I know Alan did, okay. Now, while Kathleen Kenyon was dismantling Bible history, Emmanuel Velikovsky was rewriting history in his own way. He's a Russian Jew. He's a psychotherapist. Uh, We call him a polymath, a Renaissance man of sorts. He studies everything. And he wrote three books that rocked the scientific world, exposing flaws in Egyptian chronology. I'm going to mention all three books here. The first one is Worlds in Collision, published in 1950. His main theme is that the earth has been visited by many catastrophes, and you will find them in the ancient histories of the nations. Now, Emmanuel Volkowski was agnostic, but he was knowledgeable of the scriptures. That book was scandalous. He claimed that uh, the, the planet Venus was ejected from the planet Jupiter and that it was It passed by the earth, created a lot of upheaval, and it wound up in the orbit it is now. He predicted that Venus would be found to be much hotter than scientists think. And he was proven right on that. When they finally sent space probes up there around 1960, I'm sorry, in the early 60s, they sent a space probe up there, and he says, my goodness, Venus is way hotter than we expected. And Velikovsky enjoyed a short period of vindication for that. But they said, your theories are crazy, planets ejecting comets and the earth being flipped up upside down and all that. Well, instead of writing another volume on that, he wrote something called Ages in Chaos in 1952. He wound up adding to it. So the 1952 version is called Volume 1. Later in his life, he worked on the idea some more. But the theme of that book was that the chronology of Egypt is all messed up. And this has wrought havoc on the timing of the world history tied to it. 
Book number three, it's of minimal interest right now. It was 1955, it's called Earth and Upheaval, and it was a review of ancient catastrophe stories in the locus of the flood. And that was a pretty good book, actually, but it's not of interest to us now. We're going to focus on ages in chaos and uh, worlds in collision. Now, I'm going to give you six points that he asserted in these books. Number one, the chronology of Egypt is all messed up. You're crazy trying to align to it. They, it it's, it's just all messed up. It's all messed up. He said that he could use the historical timing of catastrophes to synchronize history. I mean, suppose two nations record in their history a similar catastrophe, something that's unforgettable. And the history and chronology and timing of that is well known and anchored in time. Then you could use that to synchronize the history of the other nation. So instead of trying to synchronize personalities, you're synchronizing recorded events. His third assertion was that Dudamosi I was the pharaoh of Exodus. Now, Dudamosi, he goes way back. 16, in the Egyptian chronology, he goes way back to 1690 BC or 1584 BC, depending on which dynasty you place him in. And that means that if he really was the pharaoh of Exodus and the Bible age is accurate, that means Egyptian chronology is off by either 244 years or also 138 years. This is a third claim of his. Pressing on, he published the Apur Papyrus, documenting Exodus plagues through the eyes of Egyptians, uh, one Egyptian. And I've read it a number of times, and you line them up, and these catastrophes that are in the Apur Papyrus match item for item with the plagues of Egypt. It's scary how much they line up. This is obviously a victim of the plagues. Well, he published it and expounded upon it. He also found, a side note, he found record of an extended night in the ancient Mexican annals of Cuauhtitlan. And um, he says that corresponds to the extended day that Joshua experienced. See, Joshua gets an extra long day. Somebody on the other side of the world gets an extra long night. He felt that those things in the Bible really happened, but he expended an awful lot of energy trying to find natural explanations. Finally, item number six. He talked about a shrine of black granite found at, the, at El Arish on the border of Egypt and Palestine. It's actually Israel. But that's how he described it. And he, he says this granite describes the pharaoh and his chariots lost at a whirlpool near Pi-Kihiroth. Pi-Kihiroth. Now, the same place is identified in Exodus 14.2 and Numbers 33.7 as Pihakiroth. Now, those of you who know a little bit about Hebrew know that the He is a definite article that's optional. And that's why he says they're the same place. Exodus 14.2 and Numbers 33.7 identify a place with the same name as a place where some pharaoh got lost in a whirlpool. That's exciting. Some of this stuff is crackling with excitement. I'm going to give you a quote from that steel shrine, that black shrine. Now, when the majesty fought with the evildoers in this pool, the place of the whirlpool, the evildoers prevailed not over his majesty. His majesty leapt into the place of the whirlpool. Now, I neglected to paste it in here, but there's an additional part. It said that 
the whirlpool threw the Pharaoh into the sky and he never returned. So that's how they interpreted that. That looks to me like the Red Sea crossing. Now remember, if you put all the Bible verses together, the Pharaoh was lost with the chariots of the army too, wasn't he? He was lost in there too. You got to look everything up. In the Hollywood movie, the Pharaoh stands aside and he says, this is the work of butchers, not a king. So he lets his, his men go out there and get killed. But according to the scriptures, the Pharaoh was lost too. Go pressing on with this shrine at El Arish. It says that the name of the Pharaoh who perished in the whirlpool was Tom or Tom. It is of interest that Pitom means the abode of Tom. Pitom and Ramses? Hmm? Sound like a connection there? Pitom was one of the two cities built by the Israelite slaves for the Pharaoh of oppression. Now, quoting another source, Velikovsky says, In Manetho, the Pharaoh in whose days, quote, the blast of heavenly displeasure fell upon Egypt, preceding the invasion of the Hyksos. This guy is called Tutameus or Tamaios. In Dudamausi is another variant, recognizes another variant for Tutameos. Now, if you look at the name Tutameos, you could see how Tom could be a contraction of that. Tutameos, contraction could be Tom. Therefore, he concludes that Dudamausi is the pharaoh of Exodus. Unfortunately, Emmanuel Velikovsky's work crashed and burned as he, over the years as he applied more and more skews and distortions to support his theories, which treated all ancient histories as equally valid. Brothers and sisters, do you honestly think all ancient histories from all over the world are equally valid? Let's see a show of hands. How many think they're all equally valid? Gives me a chance to take a drink. Well, for those of you listening in the audio outreach, in response to my question, I've counted the hands that went up, and I see zero. Of course, if Velikovsky made a great mistake in assuming all histories had equal value, especially trying to give them the same weight as the Bible. His revised chronologies and synchronizations manufactured dual personalities and alter egos in history. His work is valued for pointing out flaws in standard Egyptian chronology and for drawing attention to important archaeological artifacts, shrines, and historical records. But he got the ball rolling. Chronology and chaos. Enters, in 1990s, enter David M. Roll. Now, he fell in love with Egyptology as a boy. And he found much in error in Egyptian chronology once he got really good at Egyptian history. I saw one of his videos. He explained it very well. He, uh, he, sh he shows you two burial sites in Egypt of two pharaohs and one is obviously built later than the other. It's just obvious. Yet, in the standard chronology, the, the one buried later appears first in history. He said, there's something wrong here. They don't know who's reigning, when, and where. Even though he's an agnostic, he is friendly to the Christian community. I used to uh, be friends with him on Facebook, and... Um, I remember one year at Passover, he said, let us commemorate the life of a very great man. So I knew he had some sensitivity to the scriptures. Well, he found resolution of Egyptian chronology, and he had success after he disengaged Shoshank and Shishak. He, he decoupled them. 
and he allowed a natural alignment between Egyptian history and the Bible. And uh, this is the book he published. I, I own one. I, I loaded it to a dear family in Chicago, and I never asked for it back. This book is crackling with excitement. If you look at your screen in the upper left-hand corner, you'll see the same cover as the book I have here. In England, it was called The Test of Time. It was coupled with a, uh, uh, a documentary series that David Roll did. In America, they, they had him retitle it as Pharaohs and Kings, A Biblical Quest. And this is an image of uh, his, his uh, web page, his web log page. And I want to draw your attention to something in the lower left-hand corner. I've highlighted it in the yellow box. He says that his work is, quote, an alternative to the Velikovskian chronology of ancient Egypt. And he mentions Velikovsky several times in this book. So he was inspired by Velikovsky, but he was inspired by others. I'm going to take a moment and read something here. In the 1950s, the infamous Dr. Emanuel Velikovsky began his crusade against scientific and historical orthodoxy. This non-Egyptologist, he was trained as a psychologist under Jung in Vienna, was a true heretic much in the mold of his hero, Akhenaten. With the publication of his first two books, Worlds in Collision and Ages in Chaos, he shook the scholarly world to its very foundation, stirring up a gaggle of scientists in historians to mount a savage and prolonged assault on his academic credibility. Even before the publication of those first controversial books, leading American academics were threatening to withdraw all support and cooperation from Velikovsky's original publishers. Macmillan, who had dared to contemplate making the wayward polymath's theories available to the public, the first publisher caved in and withdrew its contract, but fortunately, Doubleday stepped into the breach to ensure the free and independent scholarship could not be so easily suppressed. If you think about what I just read, it should have a, a ring to it. Around the country, colleges and professors were calling Velikovsky's publisher and saying, you publish that book and we cancel our contracts with you. Does that have a ring to it? Does that kind of sound familiar? This disgraceful attempt at censure, subsequently followed by a vicious character assassination of Velikovsky, with the publication of the two books, soon backfired on the would-be assassins. Their widely publicized efforts helped to push both worlds in collision and ages in chaos to the top of the bestseller lists in the USA and Europe. Those academics who had tried to silence the heretic had thus inadvertently elevated him to occult status. Not occult, but to having a cult status, you know. Well, anyway, I just thought that was interesting. They tried so hard to silence this guy, but his main, main accomplishment was to stir things up and to bring to the surface things we hadn't thought of before. Here are some of David Roll's accomplishments when he published Pharaohs and Kings. He tracks and verifies Bible history from Joseph to the Book of Kings, synchronizing the Bible with natural history and world history, including Egyptian history. He published early archaeology finds from Avaris in Egypt, the land of Goshen, up there in the, the Nile Delta. Remember, that's where the good land is, the fertile land. Remember Pharaoh told Joseph, take the best of the land. 
That's where our people were up there. And a lot more has emerged since then from Avaris, indicating that the Semitic Hebrew people were there and suddenly left. But we still have only excavated a fraction of Avaris at this point in time. Then he dug into the Tel El Armana letters. I learned about those in the 1970s. I was like a late teenager. And even then I knew that sometime in the 70s, I, I can't, I, I want to be honest up here. Anyway, I was either a young adult or a late teenager, but I knew at once when I heard what was in those letters, they would be important. And he discovered the name of Jesse, David, and Shaul in there, and he identified other Bible characters in the Tel El Armana tablets. When you sink your teeth into this book, I'm telling you, it just explodes with excitement to see the Bible come alive like you are there. And he further develops the Apure Papyrus text, which was first introduced by Velikovsky. I mean, this guy was hitting home runs with 10 men on base. And of course, what do you, can you predict what happens? When a guy does something that makes the Bible look good, can you predict what happens? He's vilified, he's condemned. People talk bad about him. He placed the Exodus in 1446 where it belongs. He identifies Pharaoh Shishak with Pharaoh Ramses II. <coughs> he found out that, that uh, Ramses had a nickname, Shisha, in Egyptian. If you just put a K at the end of it, you got Shishak. And so the military conquests of Shishak were the military conquests of Ramses II. And they did exist, that did happen. So this was a master stroke to focus on the last syllable of the name Ramses. Um, how many people know that the nickname for Benjamin Netanyahu is Bibi? Okay, this happens, people make nicknames. Okay, 18 years later, 2014, David Roll becomes the lead consultant to Tim Mahoney in Patterns of Evidence movie. And he also identifies Dudamosi as the pharaoh of Exodus, just as did Velikovsky. So the last guy in this section of my presentation, Timothy Mahoney. He had a crisis of faith. He heard all that baloney I talked about earlier. Remember all that baloney about the Exodus didn't happen, the conquest of the Holy Land didn't happen. It's preposterous on the face of it. But this happened because he was sloshing through the works of atheistic scholars who poisoned his mind. I wonder how many people lost their faith plugging into Bible-hating, Elohim-hating scholars. He launched a series of films researching the series of events that I'm discussing today. <clears throat> He's got four movies out now on this whole business. Let's go back to Kathleen Kenyon. Let's put a ribbon on that. She stunned the world by declaring that Jericho was destroyed around 1550 B.C. The truth is she ignored the dating of her predecessor on the site. She believed that Jericho could not be the Jericho of the Bible because some cypress pottery was missing. That was it. In the parts of Jericho that she was excavating, she found no pottery from Cyprus. She said, oh, I don't see pottery from Cyprus. I guess this all happened in 1550 B.C. This is essentially what she did. To me, it's lunacy to make a decision like that based on what's not there. But that's what she did. There's a webpage I want to point you to. You can find other places on the Internet that talk about this. This is from the Conservapedia. 
The article is titled The Jericho Chronology Dispute. Just quoting sections of it. The final publication of Kenyon's work revealed that there were serious oversights or flaws in Kenyon's methodology. She ignored the common pottery types that were found in Jericho City 4 instead of focusing on the imported Cypriot ware that she said was not present in her area of excavation. The second problem already mentioned is that she ignored Garstang's report, the previous guy, of finding extensive painted pottery and other local forms indicative of the late Bronze Age in his excavation. Let's tap the break. Late Bronze Age, that's the Exodus and the conquest of the Holy Land. That time frame is the late Bronze Age. And she ignored the findings of her predecessor that nailed that. It turns out, I don't have time, but the guy who came after her, he continued finding evidence of the correct date, not this 1550 thing. One more quote from the Conservapedia. Curiously, the conclusions that Kenya drew in other areas have been abandoned by later scholars, but there is a certain tenacity with which her dating of Jericho City 4 is maintained to the present day, contrary to the evidence that her handling of the Jericho data was selective and often unscientific. Let's press on. We're going to talk about the archaeology, where and what. Now, I, I totally reject, from now on, I totally reject any of this talk about Exodus never happened, conquest of the Holy Land never happened. They came up with some wacky theory that the conquest of the Holy Land was actually a bunch of uh, Hebrews who rose up in rebellion and took over the land. <clears throat> oh, let's, uh, I'm going to press on with the archaeology now. The archaeology part, we're going to talk about assets on the ground, things on the ground, mountains, rivers, things left behind by human beings. We have to ask some basic fundamental questions. And uh, my hope is that some of you might seize upon areas of research you want to get good at as the years go by. We have put your time and energy into it. And um, don't ever neglect your sacred duties for stuff like this. But um, I'm condensing an awful lot of material here. And I, I think I found simple ways to approach this. Locating Midian is supremely important. Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, Exodus 21, 15. Exodus 3, verse 1 says, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of Elohim, even to Horeb. You've got to know where Midian is. Every map, every reference I have looked at puts it where you see it on this image. I'm going to show you more. I'm going to draw your attention to that peninsula in the middle. It's called the Sinai Peninsula because they erroneously thought Mount Sinai was there. I don't want to call it the Sinai Peninsula. So take a note of it. From now on, I'm going to call it the Pizza Peninsula. It looks like a slice of pizza, doesn't it? Okay, we're going to call it the Pizza Peninsula. It looks like a slice of pizza pointing downward. You look at the Pizza Peninsula, to the left is the Gulf of Suez. To the right is the Gulf of Aqaba. East of Aqaba is the land of Midian. Everybody puts Midian east of Aqaba, the Gulf of Aqaba. Here's a map from 1794. You may have a hard time reading it in the view grass, but that red square is around the word Midian. Again, east of the Gulf of Aqaba. Where is Midian? East of the Gulf of Aqaba. 
That's where Moses and Jethro bopped around. That's where they hung out. That's where they fed their sheep. Here's another old map. I've been been unable to find the age on it, but it looks maybe 100, 200 years old. And in that red box, if you you want me to show you later, you zoom in and it says Midian, east of the Gulf of Aqaba. Conclusion, every source places Midian on the eastern side of the Gulf of Aqaba and the northwest area of of the Arabian Desert. I should have said the Arabian Peninsula, and you'll see that in a bit. One more time. The Pizza Peninsula is pointing down. The Gulf of Aqaba is to the east. And then to the east of the Gulf of Aqaba is Midian. Let's lock it in. This is real simple. Here's another image showing Midian to the east of the Gulf of Aqaba. These images are all over the place. Everybody knows. Just like that song, everybody knows. Everybody knows Midian is east of the Gulf of Aqaba. Okay, next question. Where's the eastern Egyptian border? This is big. This is big. Where's the eastern border of Egypt? Every map of the Pizza Peninsula, otherwise known as the Sinai Peninsula, every map shows that Sinai was always part of Egypt. Always. Now, it doesn't seem intuitive because the the Pizza Peninsula looks like it's kind of separated from Egypt because of the Gulf of the Suez. Don't be fooled by that. We have parts of America that are out there hanging and flapping in the breeze. Nobody questions about Alaska. Nobody questions Florida. How about Maine up there? Okay, nobody says, oh, it's kind of big and not connected. No, it's, it's part of America. What is called the Sinai Peninsula, the Pizza Peninsula? It's always been Egypt. It's not kind of Egypt, sort of Egypt, under the influence of Egypt. It's Egypt. Do you remember after the war when, when, when um, President Carter, hallelujah, President Carter got uh, Egypt and Israel together at the Camp David Accords? And Israel said, here, take, take the Sinai Peninsula. Just take it. We just want peace, you know? Just take it. That's always been Egypt's territory. In the Promised Land, the western border of the Holy Land is called the River of Egypt. Where's the eastern Egyptian border? That's the next question to ask. Yahweh promises Abraham in Genesis 15, 18. Unto thy seed I have given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. What is the river of Egypt? The river of Egypt today is a dried riverbed today. It's not the Nile. Because if you say that in your mind, I hope you can follow some geography here. If you say the Nile River in Egypt is the river of Egypt, then you're saying that the Israelites entered the Holy Land immediately after Passover. And scriptures say explicitly they were not going into the Holy Land just yet. The river of Egypt is a dried valley. It's called a wadi, and it's still discernible. The wadi el-Arish is its name today. By the way, El Arish is the same place where that black granite was found by uh, Velikovsky. Okay, where are the Eastern Egyptian border? The river of Egypt, Wadi El Arish. Now, somebody on the internet here, kindly, um, you'll find this, I think, at Bible.ca. They got some strong opinions on this stuff. 
But this shows the, the dried up river beds and all the tributaries going into it. How in the world do you fashion a, that as a border? Well, it's called the River of Egypt. So it's, it's got to either be in Egypt or on the border of Egypt. There's many ways to interpret this. You could interpret it so that not a single tributary is in holy land. And that's one way to look at it. Now, there's a faint line in here. I don't think it's going to show up. There's a faint line. It runs from the north of the Gulf of Aqaba. It goes north slightly west till it touches the Mediterranean Sea. It's drawn in such a way that every drop of the river of Egypt is not in the promised land. It's drawn in such a way. So I'd like you to do that with your mind. If you can't see it, you can do it mentally. Draw a line from the top of the Gulf of Aqaba, a line running to the Mediterranean Sea, and, and orient it so that every bit of that river is in Egypt. We're going to say that's Egypt. We're going to say that's Egypt. And then, <clears throat> but that also means everything to the right of that line is holy land. That's the promise thing. And the Hebrews can't go there. They can't go there for a while. Now, where is Mount Sinai? Some of you may be troubled by the, uh, the quick way in which I arrive at this conclusion. This is a picture of the uh, Pizza Peninsula. And down there in the bottom, you have a blue triangle with a blue square around it that's the traditional Mount Sinai what you're about to see is a bunch of baloney when you see it when you I guarantee when you see it you'll never forget it most of these sites are either in Egypt see the red triangles these are other alternate candidate sites for Mount Sinai they're either in Egypt or they're in the Holy Land None of them qualify. They can't be in Egypt because they left Egypt. Can't be in the Holy Land because they're not allowed to go there. None of these are candidates for Mount Sinai. You can't get around this. But there's one detail that really irks me. See that blue arrow I just added? Moses starts here. Midian. Now, you can go to Google Earth and check this. But for Moses to start there with his sheep, and he says to Jethro, I'm going to be out for a while feeding the sheep. Uh, I'm going to go to Mount Horeb. You know. So according to tradition, he walked 200 miles around that Gulf of Aqaba with his sheep, his starving, hungry sheep, and he's going to go there to feed them. 200 miles. That's the distance from here to... Springfield, Illinois. And there's, there's no truck stops on the way, you know? <laughs> this is absolutely preposterous. This is such a... One, one of the authors I, I found along the way, he was saying the same thing as me. He said, this is utterly preposterous that Moses would start in Midian at the tip of that arrow, go 200 miles around the north of the Gulf of Aqaba, go, go, go south of the Pizza Peninsula, Say, okay, I'm, I think the sheep are going to eat here. You know, that, that's just ridiculous. And with the animals and everything, he's only going to go about 10 miles per day. So he's going to be going for 20 days looking for a patch of grass to feed, to, to, to feed these poor sheep. 
There is absolutely no question we can throw out the traditional side of Mount Sinai. I'm throwing out all the other candidates because they're either in Egypt or they're in the promised land. And the Bible says they left Egypt, and the Bible also says they couldn't get into the promised land until it was time. Make sure I didn't miss one here. Yeah, the, the nearest one to the, to the blue tip of the arrow is 70 miles away. Even that's, even that's long. Now, the Bible indicates that the Ten Commandments incident occurred right where Moses started. Where he's grazing sheep in Midian. Well, the wording is a little delicate. It says, and he said, certainly, I will. Oh, yeah, he's talking to Moses at uh, Mount Sinai. And he says, certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, you shall serve Elohim upon this mountain. That says token there, it means a sign. This is like a verification. It's, you know, you're talking to the boss. Okay, let's just briefly mention something else. When people say Northwest Arabia, they're talking about Midian and and other features being in Northwest Arabian Peninsula. They mean Northwest of this brown golden patch you see here. Now, the Pizza Peninsula is colored in uh, gray in the Northwest area. But I wanted you to get a glimpse of what the Arabian Peninsula looks like. So when people mention it in your studies, you know it's talking about that larger thing. But our, our focus is going to be in the northwest region. Now that concludes my overview of, of some basics. Mount Sinai cannot be in those areas indicated, and it's going to be somewhere on the east side of the Gulf of Aqaba. Now let's talk about some of the players here, some of the superstars. 1978, a self-funded amateur archaeologist named Ron Wyatt searches for the Red Sea crossing first, concluding that this is the key to finding Mount Sinai. He is joined by his sons. This is the genius of Ron Wyatt. I would say he was inspired or led this way. Whereas most people are running around saying, let's find a mountain to fit. He says, no, find the Red Sea crossing first. That eliminates 90% of the possibilities. And then you can start to narrow your search for the mountain. Find the Red Sea crossing first. That was the genius of Ron Wyatt. <coughs> he rents an airplane to search around the Gulf of Aqaba to find a suitable place for the Red Sea crossing. In the photograph, you can see the tip of the airplane engine. They took a, a video there. And he finds a honey of a spot it's called the Nueva Beach on the Sinai Egyptian side. Now, I measured it on Google Earth. It's two miles by three miles high. And the sweet spot, the sweet spot is two by three miles. Plenty of room to put all those people. That yellowish path you see leading from the left side of the screen, that's the route our people took when fleeing from Pharaoh. <clears throat> So Ron gets, uh, rents a car. They land with the plane. They rent a car, him and his sons, and they go around to Nueva Beach. I misspelled it there. Sorry. And they go scuba diving. They look for artifacts. And they found them. They found evidence of chariot wheels. And you'll see pictures of this later. They got away with this because Sinai was under Israeli control at that time. Now, 
Now, he still hasn't gone to the Arabian side, the Midian side. Two years after this experience, Ron shares his findings with a friend, Rene Norbergen, and even takes him there. In Rene's book about ancient history, he states that Ron Wyatt's thinking may be correct. Encouraged by this, Ron Wyatt looks at flight maps. He goes back to his flight maps from that experience, and he finds a mountain location, Jabal el Alaz, Jabal, Jabal el Laws, on the Arabian side of the Nueva Beach crossing. And uh, this mountain area, it turns out the area is called Jabal el Laws. It has a big flat place, a giant flat spot nearby, which can hold two million people. He said, I gotta find, I gotta get there. So he begs the Arabian government to give him a visa, and they won't give it to him. So in 1982, he sneaks into Saudi Arabia with his sons. He uses local drivers, and he gets to Jabal al-Laws, and he takes extensive photos of the place. They leave quickly once they exhaust what they could do on that one visit. Remember, they got to arrange rides and everything. They got lots of photographic evidence, but they were apprehended at the border. And Ron Wyatt explained to one of the authorities what he was doing. He says, we're, we're archaeologists. We're trying to establish Moses's mountain. Now, you got to understand, Muslims respect Moses. They really do. They love him. They celebrate him. But they didn't believe Ron Wyatt. They thought he was a, him and his sons were spies. He says, we're not spies. And he, he begged the guard. He says, take me by helicopter to your beach. He was trying to pick a spot across from the Nueva Beach in Egypt. He said, take me there, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. And when they landed, there was a pillar looking back at them. <clears throat> Nobody knew that that was there. Nobody talked about it. Now, the pillar you're looking at is the one on the Egyptian side. It's still standing. The one on the Arabian side has been taken down. But once that um, law enforcement authority saw that pillar, he knew, Ron Wyatt knew what he was talking about. It turns out Ron Wyatt didn't know that pillar was there. That was just, like, left there. <clears throat> Ron Wyatt thinks he's interpreted the Hebrew on one of the pillars, the one that's gone, and he believes he saw the word Yahweh there, Pharaoh, death, other things. But we'll have, we have no way to verify that. But he, he also saw the name Solomon there. And he believes Solomon put those pillars up to commemorate the Red Sea crossing at the Nueva Beach, commencing in Egypt. They were ultimately released, but all their evidence and equipment were seized. The pillar on the Saudi side has been removed. The Egyptian one still stands. They were incarcerated for 78 days. It took congressmen and senators begging Arabia to let him go. And when he returned to America, he was a sensation. You can see him here being interviewed by Bill Curtis of CBS. Our Chicago friends know who Bill Curtis is. Local guy made good. Uh, a few years later, a rich Saudi prince arranged for Ron to make a second trip with extensive support and funding and government approval. They, they had a great time, ran around that mountain, took a lot of pictures, and once again, they were apprehended and all the materials were seized. Ron came home shaking. He says, I'm never going to go back there again. He made a vow. I said, I'm not going back. I'm not going back. So um, now he's trying to figure out how to get pictures of the place. In a parallel path, 
Enter Bob Cornuke and Larry Williams. I'm sure many of you have heard of Bob Cornuke. This is a little complicated, but it's not too hard. Ron Wyatt had a friendship with astronaut Jim Irwin, and they were talking about a joint venture someday to get to this Mount Sinai thing. Well, David Fossold, Fossold was an associate of Irwin, and he got wind of Ron Wyatt's discovery. So he gave the information to his friend, Bob Cornuke. And Bob Cornuke partnered with his friend, Larry Williams. In 1988, they also sneaked into Arabia. They really, they forged a document, they forged a, uh, some prince's signature, and they managed to get the Jabal El Laws, the true Mount Sinai, and took lots of pictures. Businessman Larry Williams was mostly interested in the gold. Bob Cornuke, he's a cop and a Christian. Larry Williams is the first one to write a book about the adventure. I bought that book. It has two titles, The Mount Sinai Myth, and it was formerly known as The Mountain of Moses. By calling it The Mount Sinai Myth, it looks like clickbait. But what he's saying is that the tradition of Mount Sinai is a myth. He's the first one to publish pictures. You know, they were apprehended too, and most of their pictures were taken, but they managed to bring some back home, and those pictures are terrific. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know if I should have included this, but a guy named Howard Bloom partnered with him to write a dramatized version of their story. It was called The Gold of Exodus. You could tell it was like embellished. Finally, in June 1990, Bob Cornu got around to writing his book, in Search of the Mountain of G.O.D., The Discovery of the Real Mount Sinai. So now you got three books on one incident, three books on one visit. But there's more. Bob Cornuke also collaborated with some film producers to make the movie The Search for the Real Mount Sinai. And we saw it here at YRM. And many of us came away saying, that's the real Mount Sinai, based on one trip and one, one, you know, one bucket of evidence. Now, there's several camps at play here. The Ron Wyatt Associated Camps claim that Cornuke Williams' team failed to give Ron Wyatt enough credit. They kind of took the idea and ran with it. Uh, Larry Williams' book does mention Ron Wyatt, but together they, they never answered Ron Wyatt's inquiries for photos and to share information. And Ron Wyatt was kind of wounded by that, especially his wife was wounded by the fact that Ron Wyatt was just kind of brushed aside after all the risks he took. And so you'll find tension between these camps. Okay, another parallel path. In 1992, entered Jim and Penny Caldwell, practicing Christians. Okay. Jim Caldwell was an engineer working at Aramico near Riyadh. As a couple, they set their heart to see Mount Sinai someday. They were going to go to the traditional site, and they planned to visit there. When they went, they were grievously disappointed. The place is an empty paper bag. There's no, nothing of archaeological significance there. In fact, there's hucksters, hawking uh, tourist uh, trinkets and things. It's just, they said, this is not Mount Sinai. Because they had diligently studied. They knew about Midian, and uh, they knew about other features that they should look for. Now, for tax reasons, they had to stay out of Arabia for an extended period before returning. So they spent their time at a hotel in Nueva Beach. At a bookstore, they found a book called The Gold Mines of Midian. And this book explained that Midian is found in the northwest of the Arabian Peninsula, like I told you earlier. And they went wild. They said, no wonder we, we didn't like that Mount Sinai. It was in the wrong place. Moses was tending flocks while a resident of Midian. Now, the contents of that book included a letter from a, a scholar named Charles Beek, 
And later in Caldwell's life, they found a they found a book written by him called Sinai in Arabia, and he claimed that Mount Sinai would be found in there. He said, "Time will prove me right. The Sinai um, mountain will be found in Arabia." But anyway, the next day after this Caldwell experience, they find another book on a shelf in uh, at a bookstore nearby the hotel. This one's called The Mountain of G.O.D., written by Emmanuel Anadi. It listed several possible candidate sites for Mount Sinai, including Jabal al-Laws. Encouraged by these possibilities, the Caldwells commit to looking for Mount Sinai throughout Midian. You see, he's working there, and with his work visa, him and people like him, they go out on these dune buggies, and they go running around looking at stuff in Arabia. And this, to them, this is a fun weekend. They say, we can do this too, but we're going to go in the direction of Jabal. Well, we're going to go with the Jabal al-Laws and other areas, you know, looking for this mountain. They realize they only have the freedom to look just in one place, Midian. And upon leaving the hotel, something strange happens. The reason I'm putting you through this series of events is I'm hoping you'll see the hand of Elohim here. Because Yahweh used the diversity of people to get this done. David Roll. An agnostic. Um, uh, Ron Wyatt, a Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, this couple. Upon leaving the hotel and returning to Arabia, their escort, a driver, he nervously describes a man he met who sketched for him a mountain with pillars and a cave. This map also described a cave and an altar at the location. Jim copied the map by hand. The escort proved to be part of a scam, a scam to have someone take pictures of Jabal al-Laws and sell them to Ron Wyatt, who was desperately seeking such photos. Wyatt had reluctantly agreed to provide a vast sum of money for these photos. This guy had a connection to Ron Wyatt, and the Caldwells didn't know this. Yahweh knew. I'm throwing pictures of the Caldwells in there. They became celebrities when they finally came home. Well, not knowing of the scam, Jim and Penny joined the driver to see Jabal al-Laws for their first time. The main mountain was already surrounded by a fence as a result of the prior explorers. Jim's getting increasingly uncomfortable with the demeanor of the driver. Jim started remembering a video sent to him by his sister, a video about Ron Wyatt. The connection to the driver's customer was compelling. He thought, is this nervous driver of mine who wants me to take pictures with him is he, is he connected to the same Ron Wyatt I saw in the videos? Well, Jim uh, Caldwell frantically sought out Ron Wyatt by phone from, from uh, Arabia. And he got in touch with Ron Wyatt. And he said, listen, don't send any money to Arabia. I'm telling you, friends, it was a pile of dough. Wyatt was getting desperate for pictures of the place that he himself had found. Well, a warm relationship began with between them, and starting in 1992, the Caldwells generously started leaking photos and videos to Ron Wyatt, who incorporated them in his talks while refusing to say where he got those things. After about 11 trips to Mount Sinai, the Caldwells returned home and started publishing. Here are some of their contributions. They found the split rock with significant water erosion around it. You look at the water erosion on the other side of that thing, you say, man, there was a lot of water there. Penny Caldwell reports that the water pressure was so great you could see where the water was putting, uh, chips, putting chips in the rock on both sides. They have petroglyphs of bovine at an altar there, an altar uh, 
that was um, evidently for the golden calf. They found the altar of Moses, rocks not cut by human hands. They found the holding pens for the cattle at the sacrificial site, countless photos, videos, Elias cave. They found the 12 wells and the oasis at Elim, mentioned in Exodus 15, 12. Exactly 12 wells, like the Bible says, and an oasis full of uh, palm trees. They found the burial grounds of the 3,000 that were slain there. And they found remains of the 12 pillars that Moses put up. These are their contributions. They wrote separate books. This is a book by Penny Caldwell. Um, Jim Caldwell wrote his own book called Jabo Makla. Makla. That's the name of the specific mountain peak. Jabal Allah is actually a regional name. A menorah was found in the area, but it was later effaced. I can't find the picture, but somebody scratched that out. That menorah is an original a petroglyph that was found uh, in the area. Uh, here, a gold calf altar with bovine petroglyphs was there. Now, here's an example of a bovine petroglyph. They have remains of the pillars there. There's pictures of that. Here's the plain large enough to support a nation. Uh, Jabal, uh, pardon, uh, our Mount Sinai, the real one, is uh, in the distance to the left. Now, Ron Wyatt's crossing at Nueva Beach shows dramatic drop-off outside the range of the land bridge. There's a land bridge there. Many people have talked about it. To be complete, I have to confess, Cornuke and Williams and some other researchers say that at the mouth of the Gulf of Aquaba, there's also a land bridge called the Straits of Tehran. Okay, and it's, it's not as attractive. And if you see, um, if, you, uh, if you look at this video, the Red Sea Miracle, part two, you see um, Tim Mahoney teases out of one of these proponents the fact that some parts of that gland bridge are very steep. And the guy kind of blows them off. But the Nueva crossing is the only place littered with pertinent artifacts underwater, mostly chariot wheels and axles. There's a chariot wheel, two chariot wheels with an axle in between. Same photo. We're going to look at Exodus 14.25. Yahweh says that Yahweh took the wheels off the chariots. The chariots are made of wood. They're going to float to the top and disappear. The vast majority of your artifacts are going to be chariot wheels. Sometimes we get such tight synchronization with archaeology and the Bible. The tightest one I know of are those letter seals they find in the city of David where people with Bible names are on them. This one is, I would say, second place to that. Because Yahweh took the wheels off the church. Now, here's the deal. The wheels are reinforced with bronze, and the axles have metal around them. They sink to the bottom. The wood decomposes, and the coral grows wherever it can grab onto it. One more player is uh, Leonard Moller, the Swedish scientist. He performed several deep dives to look for artifacts at the Nueva Crossing. He's the guy responsible for most of these pictures. Numerous photos and metal detector hits while down there. He published an excellent compilation of photos and evidence into one book. If uh, Gary and Stacy Mansager are watching, I want to thank you for turning me on to this. Okay. Now, this one happens to be in our library downstairs, as is this book from uh, David Roll. 
The case, the Exodus case, jam-packed with photos. Leonard Moeller also made a nice video, The Exodus Revealed, showing you uh, the pictures down now. Now, these are supposed to be coral-covered chariot wheels. I'm going to give you several. A little imagination. I wish they were a little better, but uh, with a little imagination, you can see a, a wheel there with spokes, sometimes with a hub on it covered with coral. Now this is a photograph taken from the book. I tried to find these photographs on the internet, but this is the controversial gilded wheel that was found early on. And coral can't grow on that. The only place the coral is growing is in the center. It seemed to grab on some. And there are images of official Egyptian wheels. That would be high-ranking chariots, like Pharaoh or some commander close to him. That's the same chariot wheel. They can't take it out because there's four countries bordering the Gulf of Aqaba. Every one of them is going to scream bloody murder if they take artifacts out of the water. A lovely gal named Viveka Pontaine, she also went down there, performed some of her own diving, and contributed to our record. Here's one of the photos from her webpage. <coughs> she has several. Here's a summary of the what and where part. A diverse bunch of people involved. Ron Wyatt was the first to discover. Cornuke and Williams were the first to bring out photos. The Caldwells were the most successful in bringing out extensive photos and videos. Leonard Muller and Viveka Pontaine document the underwater evidence of the crossing. Last section, study of the timeline when it all happened. Not much here. There's not much to talk about. There is a likely route cutting through the Pizza Peninsula, going through the, the Nueva Crossing and into the uh, Midian area. This is just a bunch of math. I don't know if I want to talk. If you, you guys want to go through this, you can call up the, the, the broadcast on YouTube and study it. But it was about uh, 47 days to get to Mount Sinai. But the math, if you do the math, it suggests that they, were, they had the Red Sea crossing at about day 28. The math also yields a journey of 16 days from the refreshing wells of Elam to Mount Sinai. Within the 16-day period, now they're on the safe side of the Sea of Reeds, the Yom Suf. In that 16-day period, they received the manna and learned of the Sabbath. They received water at the Rock of Horeb. On the map, it's about seven miles northeast of Mount Sinai, and they fight off the immediate Malachites. And this map I tried to show that they spent about 28 days cutting through the Pizza Peninsula and another 19 days meandering around Midian, finally coming to Mount Sinai, the real Mount Sinai. On Google Earth, I estimated the straight line distance of 180 miles, but with all the meandering, it was probably 20 or more. If you divide that by 28 days, <coughs> they were traveling about eight miles per day, which sounds reasonable with the animals and children. I'm not going to read through all this here because it wouldn't be fair to you. Time is pressing on. You can always go to the webpage, uh, YouTube, and look at these links. But these are people and things to watch looking forward. Uh, Saudi Arabia is allowing tours now and aims to develop tourism in major city around the place. Noted researcher Joel Richardson is arranging tours. Then we have web pages for Dr. Grant Fitz, Robert Morrow, 
the Caldwells, Penny is still alive. She has a thing called splitrockresearch.org, wyattmuseum.com, ronwyatt.com, and a thing here called doubtingthomasresearch.com. Everybody's getting into the act. This thing's going to explode. Everybody's into this now. Joel Richardson felt his book was so important, he's made it free now. If you look at joelstrumpet.com, you'll find a link to his free copy of his terrific book, Mount Sinai in Arabia. Finally, the man to watch is Timothy Mahoney. He's released his fourth movie, The Red Sea Miracle 2. He's collaborated with David Roll, Penny Caldwell, Leonard Moeller, and many others for a series of films. Any web search through a browser or through YouTube will reveal a gushing torrent of resources to explore this further. Search criteria like Jabal Allah's, Mount Sinai, and any of the names I've noted above, you get plenty of great material. Brother Javon, I'm finished. Thank you very much, brothers, for your kind attention. Hallelujah. Amen.